saying how much they want a strong woman. What they really want is a cheerleader. I'd like someone who's physically very frail and won't stop talking. I just want what everybody wants. I seem to have a harder time getting it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Maximum Film. It's episode 284 for a banger video game score. It's your host, Ify Waddy Way, and in the booth with me are my friends. So let me introduce you to them. First up, we have, you know, I got to say, one of the best critics with opinions that you can never disagree with. My friend, you know him, you love him. Alonzo Duralde, what's good? Oh, Ify, uh, I'll tell you what's not good is uh, the cold medication technology that has had me, like living half underwater for the last week I'm, I'm i'm over it it's done please can we make it stop uh but what is good is hbo's the last of us and i know you're saying yes yes we all we've, we've had the discourse about how great episode three was and yes it's more than just a video game adaptation and yes it's not just another zombie thing what could be left to say about the last of us well melanie linsky bitches that's mm. what they've unpacked her in episode four so it's like how do we how do we make this thing go further North, how does it become even greater? A, a, a dollop of Ms. Linsky. And so that's what's happening now. So if you're not watching the, the, the Last of Us, good heavens, let me be the person who doesn't play video games and is over zombies to tell you uh, come for the homos, stay for Melanie Linsky. <laughs> a statement we've said before here on Maximum yeah. Films. Yeah, yeah. And well, again, that old song. Yeah. An embroidery you know, on a sampler. It's evergreen. Yeah, I was going to say that might need to be our pin for the uh, you know Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Another <laughs> sultry, sweet voice uh, with a nice Midwestern twang comes from none other than the queen of the Midwest herself. Everyone's super festival producer, programmer, super producer, all of the above. My love, Dre Clark. What's good? Well, that was real sweet. Thanks, Ify. What's good with me is this week in, like, celebrity gossip culture came out the exact tone of vanilla nonsense that just strikes me right. And that is Reese Witherspoon and Ashton Kutcher's red carpet awkwardness. I can't tell you how much I enjoy it. It's the exact Mm. flavor of celebrity story I'm interested in. No one loses in this. They both lose in this. But, like, I would so much rather be in this world than, like, don't send me the Ben Affleck, Jennifer Lopez stuff. That guy is an addict with social anxiety. I don't need to see that and wonder about what's going on there. Send me Ashton Kutcher and Reese Witherspoon, who absolutely on the red carpet together promoting Your Place or Mine, a rom-com look like like born again Christians who have been dating since they were 16 and now they're 18 and about to get married and they're going to have that weird first kiss but like a- after they say I do that's what they're giving and it, oh, it made my week I-, I want more of that all the time right in my veins yeah, yeah. way to sell the movie kids yeah oh yeah. doing the Lord's work mm-hmm well, speaking of doing the Lord's work, mm. we have an amazing guest. I know that's actor. not right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, actor, co-host of the Las Culturistas podcast and star of Alonzo's favorite new Christmas special, Matt Rogers. Hey, what y'all. is good? Welcome back. Yay! Maestro, thanks you for having me. I have to say what is good. By the way, Alonzo, you were so kind about my special. Thank you so much. Uh, that was That oh. was beyond beyond. 
All, all deserved, sir. And, you know, well, I, I do have standards in this department. So kudos. I know that and I see that and I feel that. And that's why I appreciate that. Um, you ask what's mm. good. Here's the thing. You mentioned my podcast, Las Culturistas. On that podcast, we sort of love to equate high and low culture. So I know we're going to sort of dive into high culture today. This piece of art we're going to be dissecting in just a second. So I thought I'd bring some trash to the Zoom and say <laughs> that I am so happy the Real Housewives of New Jersey are back this week, baby. I mean, it's going to be this season where the Teresa Judice Melissa Gorga feud reaches all time highs and I think a forever low. So if you are a fan of trash reality television, we have been 12 years in the making. This is going down. And if you are a Bravo holic like me, who also enjoys uh, Tar, the film Tar, as you'll see here in just a second. <laughs> Um, you know, all culture is culture, and this That's is a big, a big week Venn for us. That's a big Venn diagram, I think. It's a huge <laughs> Venn diagram. People have talked about the size of my Venn diagram before. <laughs> um, and, uh, <laughs> but yeah, very, very, very happy my girls are stomping back onto the scene. This is, this is culture for me. They, I mean, they're the bedrock of that, right? Like, when you talk about, like, which of the housewife factions is making the headlines, the cultural impact. It all goes new, back to prostitution whore. It all yeah. goes back to prostitution. That was it's truly Jews, the Franz ferdinand like, table flip <laughs> heard around the world. I mean, that changed reality television and I think solidified housewives as a cultural institution. So I'm just saying, you know, uh, Teresa is now a namaste. She's now more chill. She's married. And um, even that causes conflict. And she went so. to jail, right? Yes. Like she's now oh, she's she's done a, with that part. Okay. Absolutely in and out of prison. Um, one time, but you know, we're crossing our fingers for something that could indict her again. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. <laughs> Everything's on the table. Let's, let's, let's exactly. not rule anything out. If right. he, what's good, sir? Uh, what's good with me? Uh, I definitely have to say me being hyper fixated on these big red boots that everyone's raving about. If you oh, haven't yeah. followed it, mischief, this brand, which you allegedly is run by it, like ad company. So like the, re, all their stunts that are going viral is like a back end thing where they're like, we could do this for you. But they got some new boots that look like Astro Boy boots. Uh, and it's been funny seeing so many influencers try to style their freebies that they've gotten and look ridiculous. And what I hate is like it's gaudy enough for, for me to buy. Like that is something I would per I should have gotten a free one. I would have styled it well but I don't want to spend $350 for it. And I spent a lot of money for pretty dumb things, but I think uh, that's, you know, yeah, I'm, you know, I turned 35 this year. I have to think about trying to purchase a home or condo or whatever I may end up being able to afford in LA's housing market. And uh, I think I have to stop in my, you know, 35 year old age buying uh goofy big red boots that i'll probably wear once for a day if, if, if they did not gift you a pair of those boots after you crushed the watermelon with your thighs <laughs> who's even paying attention to social media on their behalf i ask you yeah Look, as, this is, this is as someone who was a child in the 80s in minnesota girl i had so many freaking moon boots like please don't buy those please don't please go be begrudgingly putting them on when your mom brings them back from jc penny because that's how you're meant to be wearing them is like chagrined and embarrassed but you know also wanting to keep your feet warm 
it does feel like a prank on influencers, though. Like, like, yeah. like if we tell them this is going to cause engagement, will they wear it? And the answer so far has been a resounding yes. So, I mean, if they actually become popular, it's not because they look good. It's just uh, because we're all sheep. Yeah. But we knew that. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, now yeah. I got to start checking to see if the dude from Real Friends of WeHo is wearing them because oh boy, that, that's an influencer I can't get enough of because well, I'm just baffled get, by everything. They'll get like 14 people to see it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. That'll be amazing. Game changer. <laughs> oh man! All right. Well, if 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 those uh, hot jokes to start off don't get you excited about this episode, let me tell you about it. We are catching up on the Oscar-nominated Tar. Then we'll talk about movie characters we'd love to hear interviewed. But first, it's time for Inadic, short for Is This Important? Do I Care? The movie news segment where we take a look at the week's movie news and ask the question, Is This Important? And Do I Care? <laughs> Kicking things off will be... Papa Alonzo. Well, just in time for Ify to uh, swear his fealty to AMC over Regal, uh, things are getting bananas. <laughs> it's another theatrical shakeup, and this time the call is coming from inside the theater. AMC announced this week uh, they will introduce a new pricing scheme that's more like stage performances, where seats with the best sightline cost a bit more than the cruddier seats. They're going to roll this out in New York, Chicago, and Kansas City for starters, and expand it to all of their U.S. theaters by the end of the year. The plan will not affect A-list members, or $5 Tuesdays or matinees. Is this important? Do you care? This is such bullshit. <laughs> Cinema is the great equalizer. It is an American art form. That's a lot. I mean, don't quote me on that. Don't put that out there. I, I've literally studied and Suck know it, better. France. But come on. Yeah, in your face, new wave. I just, the idea, I get it. They're struggling. They're figuring their stuff out. This is absolutely a group that wants to see theatrical experiences thriving doing well growing but the idea that i mean anyone with money already gets it so much better in every freaking avenue in this mm -hmm. country and the idea that that's also translating to shit like multiplexes get out of here get out of here yeah, I mean, like, the the other thing that has just happened recently that I think is a cool idea and I'd like to see where they go with it is this notion of what if we price differently for particular films? Like, Paramount decided we're going to make all 80 for Brady tickets matinee price. Mm -hmm. Even if you go at 10 o'clock at night, it's going to be the matinee price because we're trying to aim to this, like, older audience that doesn't go to the theater as much and give them a little inducement to, like, not just wait for it to pop up on Netflix, you know? So, like, if, if, if we now have a thing where the box office report every week is about tickets sold and not money brought in, great. If you want to charge people more for Avatar or Marvel because it's the Phantom of the Opera equivalent of, you know, big spectacle in a movie theater, and, and you know, maybe the Duplass brothers charge less, fine, great. I, I think that's cool, and I think... There are a lot of ideas that can work for, for trying to, like, restart the engine of American movie going. But this one's dumb. Yeah, I, I have to say, like, I, I'm hearing a different perspective now because my my gay group chat was batting this around as it's wont to do. Um, and I, I do think that for a worse experience, you shouldn't be paying for whatever 
the same price as everyone else. So if you're sitting in that front row with the neck craned up mm. and you're just not able to register what's happening on the screen as human faces interacting with one another, I would think that that person deserves to pay like $1. But the fact <laughs> is like now having lived all my years of life, like I've sat many different seats in the theater and I have to be honest, it's kind of like uh, when you go to like a theme park and you watch a 3D show, everywhere is a good seat. Theaters, modern theaters have kind of figured it out where pretty much the experience, unless you are in that front row, is a pretty good equal experience. And so I would say, unless it's going to have people only paying less for worse experiences, like that's really the only acceptable way this could move forward. But this being America and the capitalist hell that we live in, we absolutely <laughs> understand that those tickets in the middle of the theater are certainly going to reach like probably up there like 30 something dollars. And that's going to be excluding everyone else. So I guess I would have to see like exactly how this tears out. But no, in theory, this is a shitty idea. I yeah. do like the view of um, it being more what discount can we give people yeah. in shitty positions. Exactly. But you know it's not that. As someone who sat in the front row of Shakespeare in Love at the Sunset Five, <laughs> and I st- and my neck still hurts when it gets cold outside <laughs> as a result. Yeah. I do. I feel that. I yeah, feel that. I, 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 that's a worse experience. Like, that is not an equal value experience. So in that way, I get it. I think now non-sold out houses, you're going to see people like buying the cheaper seats and then moving to the middle after the trailers are over. And not even because they wanted to, but just because like they're going to getting something over on the man. Yeah. But then what? What does that start? Like a fucking police state inside the theaters? Like, I yeah, mean, it's like... More you know teenagers with flashlights, I don't right. know. Right, like... They're just creators, AMC. Because, it's like- job creation. <laughs> yeah. It's oh, job no. creation. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. I'm starting to come around. Hey, speaking of movies, James Cameron has done new research to investigate if there was room for both Jack and Rose on that door. It's 2023. Ocean obsessive James Cameron is celebrating the 25th anniversary of his movie Titanic with a TV special on National Geographic. This week, we learned that in the special, Cameron performs a series of experiments to determine if two people could have fit on the door that carried our heroine, but not our hero, to safety. The results, as far as we can tell, seem to point to maybe, but only with luck. Is this important? Do you care? I can't believe we're still talking about this. It feels like rhetorical at this point. It's it's just like, first of all, they tried to both get on the door. They couldn't do it. And here's the thing is it's like, how many times are you going to try? Like when it's re- literally, quite literally life and death. Also, are these really the logic questions we should be asking about this movie? How about this? Kathy Bates actually had a son that was the same suit size and tailored that Leo was going to fit in that suit. How about that as a logic question going forward? How about this? He was 14. Right. Rose was the only person smart enough to ask about lifeboats on that ship. That. How about just in terms of physics? When that ship went down, all those people didn't get sucked down with it. There are things before this question. This, to me, feels like what a boring boring person brings up when they have nothing else to say. The, The door thing is asked and answered. It, it, is, it is the is Die Hard a Christmas movie of the rest of the year. Yes. Yeah. At this point. Also, Titanic came out in 1997. The 25th anniversary was last year. Get with it, Paramount. You're cheating. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. All that science well, and no math. Well, everyone's been taking the free year that the lockdown gave us. They're like, we can, we can, we're going to take our free year. Cashing that in. And, yes. Yeah. 
Um, but I was saying, yeah, no, I think this is more the uh, why didn't they fly the Eagles to Mer- Mordor question. Like, this is, it was like, we were like, I'm not that nerdy, but I'll bring up Titanic. But I do stand firm that, yeah, of course, they both fit on it. I don't care. I don't, I don't know what director's cut you saw, Matt Rogers, because I just saw her chilling. I didn't see any effort. I saw they a lot tried of land. I'm telling you, they tried to get on it first. Uh, and then he was worry. like, cool, cool, cool. It's chill, chill, chill. <laughs> Quite literally. <laughs> Yeah, cool, yeah, cool, don't cool. worry. I'm gonna watch it in the uh, 25th anniversary, and I and I will report back. Yeah. Um, I'll say there has always been an element of fat shaming when people bring up the rose thing of having to scoot over. And I uh, again, having acknowledged, I know what Kate Winslet looked like in 1997, <laughs> and it was in no way fat, right. and yet was absolutely considered a voluptuous actress at yeah. the time. So there is such weird stuff that comes up with it. But what I celebrate about this, guys, James Cameron is such a dork. Like, uh, (laughs) the level of dork there, like a dork with billions. Uh, Yes, do these. Bring in all of these scientists. Like, they literally got on things the size of the door in cold water. Do it. Spend your time doing that. Thank you for not... Wanting to take celebrities to the moon. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah, but don't they, expect they the did. seed bearer on time if this is what he's doing. Yeah. Okay. Don't expect <laughs> that. Don't expect that to remain on schedule. All right. Yeah. But it's like you know they did all that work to get the answer. Maybe. Uh, but <laughs> speaking of uh, celebrating Viola Davis as now an EGOT. Uh, some Woo! good award season news for Miss Davis after last Sunday's Grammys. She now joins the short list of EGOT winners, uh, people who have won an Emmy, Grammy, and Oscar, a Tony. Something you might have uh, heard if you've watched the beginning of our movie today. She won the Best Audiobook, Narration, and Story Recording Grammy for her reading of her memoir, Finding Me. Is this important? Do you care? Hell yeah. Welcome to like, the yes. club. We love Everybody it. rise. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. yeah. I, it, it does stand out. She's one of the very few. Obviously, like, I think she's the third black woman to attain it. She also, interestingly, um, was a performer for all four of yes. those, which is a rarity. Mm. A lot of people have, like, a crossover, like, oh, I was a producer for one of them, or I wrote this thing or whatever and so the idea that you know the performance power of miss viola davis transcends medium Mm. that's real that's real and not only just for performances but for very personal performances too you get the sense Mm. that everything that she's done was important to her was like you know a, a cornerstone in her career obviously you know her work in august wilson plays and then the film and then obviously this being her story I think, yeah. and then how to get away with murder being the historic landmark moment that it was. So it's it's uh, it feels different than someone stumbling into it because they produced a strange loop, and, and in a world where that person should probably at some point win a Tony Four performance. You know what I mean? It has to feel good to know you like earned it with the craft. I adore Rita Moreno, but the fact that her Grammy is for the Electric Company TV cast album and her Emmy is for guesting on The Muppet Show yeah. is kind of wacky. But still, she's got it. She did it. She earned it. They are they are hers. Yeah. But yeah, this this feels like a whole other level of that. Yeah. She's an amazing storyteller. Oh, yeah. Mm. Definitely. Uh, it's truly. Uh, congrats, Viola. I know you're listening to the pod of course yeah. uh, and thanks for uh you know being such a a loyal listener to the show <laughs> and we congratulate you 
But now we're going to take a break. But when we come back, you'll be hearing about another EGOT, Lydia Tom. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad I found you in line. These clouds are really freaking me out. I hate having to stand in line. And boy, what a line. These giraffes do not smell good. No, they do not. And they have such short necks. But I'm hearing we need to get on this we ark. we got to get on the ark. It yeah. is about to rain. God is about to destroy humanity. Hey, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Are you Noah? Yeah, I know we look like humans, but we're actually, <laughs> yes, we're <totally>. podcasters. <laughs> we are podcasters, so it's different. Have you heard of Ono, Ross, and Carrie? We investigate spirituality, claims of the paranormal, stuff like that. And you have a boat and say the world's going to end, so seem like something for us to check out. We would love to be on the boat. We came two by two. What do you think? Ono, Ross, and Carrie, available on MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to Maximum Film. I'm your host, If You Wide Wait. In the studio with me are Drea Clark, Matt Rogers, Alonzo Duralde. And today we're talking about a movie that came out a while ago, but is now available to stream. It's been nominated for six Oscars, including Best Actress for star Kate Blanchett, Best Director for Todd Field, and Best Picture. It is Field's third film as a director and his first since 2006. So, Drea, would you mind? giving us a brief synopsis of Tar. All right. Um, World-renowned composer and musician Lydia Ta is um, on, she's embarked on fulfilling the ultimate piece of her career, which is conducting Mahler's Fifth Symphony with the Berlin Orchestra. And while that's going on, she is navigating her uh, assistant that seems to annoy her for no real reason, her wife, who also annoys her, um, this new cellist uh, who doesn't, who does the opposite of annoy her, and um, and several other things as she takes on this um, artistic enterprise, and uh, things start falling apart and getting rather bleak for our gal Lydia um, while she goes through the preparations for this major artistic milestone. Ta. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to kick it off. Matt, you've talked about your love of this movie. What is it about the movie that really works for you? You know, I just recently today in preparation for this, uh, watched the movie for a third time. And what I'm really pulling is that there's so much here. I mean, like it is, it is two hours and 37 minutes of rich. It's really is like almost all subtext in, in a way, which I really like. And I think that that becomes even more apparent on, on rewatch. I left this movie the first time actually very angry, Um, I did not get it. I did not like it. And then I realized I couldn't stop thinking about it. And then about, um, you know, 6 p.m. the next day, I think I finally came around to the fact that this is really the only relevant art I've seen in years. Uh, I think that it really, it looks at the responsibility that comes with being a leader, which I think is something that is really, really, really important in today's culture. And I also think it looks at... um, you know, the relationship to control that a leader has. And so much is made about the fact that Lydia Tarr is a woman, and this is a story about a woman being canceled, if you will. Um, 
or a woman in this accountability culture that we are now in, and thank God we are. But um, what I've really, really enjoyed is the conversations I've had with peers, with others who enjoy this film or don't so much, about whether or not um, she is a good person or not. Because I think that in and of itself, like, or or, or she's, uh, you know, someone we can relate to in any way. Because even that is just so interesting that we are really attempting to humanize this person, I think, from in terms of the people that I've talked to, really just because she is a woman. Because on paper, on face value, this person is a monster. She has very little regard for the well-being of others. Is she brilliant? Yes. Will she continue to do brilliant things? No. And I think that that is because the opportunity is taken away from her. And I think that basically what you're seeing as this movie unfolds is the, I think, knowledge of just how harmful that she has been throughout her career, certainly throughout the past year, we find out that she's responsible for someone's death at their own by their own hand. And I think that what I really love about this movie, and I'm so happy that it secured an editing nomination, is that I think that that sense of anxiety and sense of tension really matches cinematically to what she's going through personally. So I think it's really, really rich for so many reasons. It obviously features an unbelievable, I think, career best performance by Cate Blanchett, who is so good at portraying ego and the loss of control in that regard when it comes to managing one's one's own ego. And um, I just can't compliment it enough on, like I said, my third rewatch, where it feels like I'm finding even more little moments. One I'll point out is in her interview at the very top of the film, um, she mentions the word Kavanaugh, which means like knowing where one is going and being ambitious with intent and knowing that we are going to arrive at a destination, the confidence with which one moves through life. And her interviewer um, mentions offhand, you know, our audience may have a different relationship to that word Kavanaugh now. And the audience laughs um, and chuckles because of obviously <laughs> the allusion to Brett Kavanaugh. And uh, Lydia Tarr says, yes, I suppose so. And she throws a look of disdain at the audience before the camera cuts away. <laughs> and it's those small things. It's Again, it's all subtext. Of course, there is so much directly happening, and it does become uh, a film uh, that really climaxes in an active way. But the subtext and the, the careful planting of certain things that really pay off at the end of the film and throughout is, I think, what makes this the best film of the year and my personal best picture. Well, this was one of the last films that I saw. I saw it right before the Venice Film Festival when I was supposed to go to Venice and write a review of it, and I opted to have COVID instead. Um, and so... <laughs> it was popular at the time. Uh, yeah, you know, it seemed like the, everybody was doing it. And uh, I was I was just trying to sort of wrap my head around it and figure out what did I think of it, because I knew I enjoyed it to an extent, but I was, I was thinking like, but is this also ridiculous? Like, what, what am I, is my takeaway here? And then it was actually listening to to you, Matt, and Guy Branham talk about it on those cool Teresa's. I was like, oh no, this is camp. It's a comedy. And that gave me a whole new like thing to cling on to. And so then when I watched it a second time, I was like, okay, yes. This movie is like the Oscar, basically, where Stephen Boyd is this guy who is the one person in Hollywood who isn't concerned with art. He just wants to win that award because he's a conniver, you know. And and here it's like it's this world of like, you know, Classical music, which I think for most Americans is, a, is a, an elevation we do not reach. And we just think, okay, y'all are fancy up there and we don't know anything about it. 
But the more we get to see Lydia Tarr, like it is clear that that yes, she is an artist and she does have talent, but she's so much more interested in the climbing and the power and the what can she get and what can what levels can she reach and who can she screw over and who can she screw and whatever else you know with the this clout that she has attained as this egot as this untouchable you know figure of of you know les belles lettres or whatever um but it is also kind of like this is sort of an art house valley of the dolls in a lot of ways for me and so on that level i find it fascinating and and then you get into the whole thing of like well who is this movie for not 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 who's who's in the intended audience but be like who is this who is this movie in favor of and it's kind of nobody like Everyone comes off terrible in this movie. The, the 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 students at Juilliard who are like obviously trying to trip her up and like ask her these questions about the dead white man and blah blah blah. You know, like the movie kind of all finds all of them ridiculous as well. You know, as much as it also finds Lydia ridiculous for the way that she handles them or talks to them or talks down to them or condescends. Um, you know, uh, the, the 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 patrons, the other musicians, like. Everyone is a piece of shit in this movie, and 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 she is just like you know basically how well can she move through this world as a winner, and then what happens when she becomes a loser? I yeah. find the idea. I totally agree that the concept that every character across the board is kind of gross in some way, and there's so many unique things to grab onto. Um, is it Naomi Merlot that plays her? Yeah. Um, her assistant, you realize at a certain point, and, and we talked about the movie, The Assistant here, and um, have discussed it before, but the what Matt alluded to, this, this previous um, sort of protege and potentially woman that um, Lydia was having an affair with, and then her assistant helped cover it up and has been getting all these complaints with her and all this. And it's it mirrors the complicity that we see from assistants in other movies that we've talked about this year. I mean, the assistant in the past, but in She Said, the idea yeah. of like, oh, this culture happens when people enable it on different levels. And this woman, sure, she felt terrible, but did she blow any whistles until she got bit herself? And how much can we judge her for that? Like, every single person has interesting case studies of of how they make this world work in the ugly ways that it works and how much you can or cannot critique them for doing that. I also think that Lydia is, oh, she's just, it's a fascinating character and it's also centered in this film that is so much, um, about identity and about the constraints of identity like oh she's she's not just a woman she's a lesbian y'all but like yeah. her her whole thing like you're getting that and it's this oh does it change your entryway to this film if the tar the maestro that we're given is a woman and then we have to investigate how she's treating the people around her because if it was a man doing all of the same things would you be interrogating them in the same way you probably would not you would that's, not even blink at them that's exactly the point i was just gonna make because i feel like this movie also is just a a microcosm of like we and it's kind of been said uh by everyone but a microcosm of what goes on in our industry and i think you're right if this was a man 
then you'd be so focused on the fact that you, you it would seem heavy-handed almost and you wouldn't mm. be able to allow yourself to sit back and see it happen you'd almost you'd have a lot of people questioning if if the movie's trying to like you know say something that like look at the in, inner thing you know both you know, sides I, it. yeah exactly if, if the movie's both sides but like the fact that she's a woman and she she's this lesbian it allows you to kind of almost put your guard down if you're that type of person and watch it go go through and i think you're right that juilliard scene is so good because the whole time it seems like the character the, the character that is the the student seems so ridiculous because I'm like, yeah, you're into classical music, but say you don't want to listen to Sis Whiteman. That's nuts. You know, like, like it was like, it's like I, and it's the thing where you kind of want to be it's like, I get what you're trying to do, but like the, the medium that you're in and, but then the way she kind of throws it away and uses her, you know, sense of minority to be able to dismiss his is it, it to me, it's even, it, goes even deeper right because now it talks about almost like the infighting and in liberal communities and how you know it isn't just so tribal and how it's just elements of how people deal with things and then we get into the misconduct stuff and that's what really i think drives uh you know matt alonzo's like your point home so well because yeah she's covering up for Lydia, but we also have to remember it's kind of like like Sandra says, uh, where it's like it's transactional. It's like yeah, she's covering it up because she thinks she's going to get something for herself, and you know even her wife, you know it seems like she's getting something out of the relationship. Everyone, so like even though Lydia Tar is this t- horrible person, everyone around her is using her. Even uh, Sebastian, who like was like you're trying to use people, and he's like okay, then you can leave. He's like wait, no, I'm sorry, I want to still be here, and it's it's so it's just a whole bunch of shitty people who will not call out Lydia because they want something for her. And if this was like an entourage-esque, you know, movie where you saw all these dudes who were yes-men doing it, you'd be like, oh, that's just over the top. But seeing this, you're able to just really take it in in such a, uh, you know, <laughs> intense way. And I think that that is what, what's so excellent about this this film and its presentation is how self-seriously it presents itself. Because if you were to look at face value at all these characters, I, I'm telling you, I swear, this is like one of the best satirical comedies I have seen in such a long time. And what I think it does better than any film I've seen in recent memory is it covers subconscious self-consciousness. So I I think that in every single scene, she is defensive in almost every single scene. And it's it's like really part of her DNA at this point, because I think she is, if if not in denial, then she has gotten away with this behavior for so long. She knows something is wrong. She knows she has to apologize and react in in defense of something, but it's almost like she doesn't know what it is or has buried it so deep or thinks she's entitled to this behavior, maybe because she was treated a certain way on her way up. But it is 
this blindness that I, I think is probably due to ego, but could be due to environmental factors we don't see. So much of this happens off screen, which I think is also a feat in the filmmaking that I think w- when we leave the film and we understand that she's a deeply deeply harmful but also deeply sad person you know you end up asking questions about what causes this type of environment whether you can even stop it when you have someone that is regarded as genius or is you know by necessity put in charge of a group of people who think of themselves as special it's just this tornado of ego that can really only result in tragedy you know when she's not defenseless when she's swaggering over to threaten a child with bodily harm <laughs> for bullying that. her even kid that is about her i think no yeah I, yeah but that moment to me and that they do that early on and you're like oh this is pure id like the moment yeah. this insight that we're seeing there's no one that's around it is just her like Oh, if left to my own devices, this is how I treat people. And you're right. literally yeah. seeing me unleash it on uh, an, an innocent <laughs> child. Yeah. I wonder yeah. if in that way, that relationship is when when, when um, Sandra says like there's one relationship in your life that isn't transactional. I wonder if in that scene, she's actually proving that's not true because what she's doing is using her daughter in that instance in order to assert dominance because what's most important to her is control. And she wants yeah. to come in and control that situation. She joyfully walks away and says hi to another parent and doesn't give it another thought. That because, high killed me. Because she's yeah. got yeah. off in that moment. She's, she's looking for playgrounds moment. to be the alpha in, you know. <laughs> yeah. I will say the thrill, though, when she wanders over there in her in – her, um, her casual leisure wear mm-hmm. and her sensible uh, sneakers her, that were like $5,000. Um, <laughs> but, and then just to, just to decimate a child. And then I, yeah. And that introduces herself as Petra's father. Love I was it. like, genius. Go and, for and, you. And, Go and I'll say you. this, if you know, I know this is a word that we, we've beaten to death in the last few years and may never use again, but if you wanted to show someone an example of how gaslighting works, mm-hmm. The scene yeah. where she convinces the first cello to open up the cello solo to auditions when the first cello clearly does not want to. Uh, that is just like, oh, just it's such a beautiful performance of manipulation and of of of, you know, like forcing your intent on people. It, it, it's, you know, the, the writing, the acting, all of it is just like chef's kiss. We're being told yeah, by when, Marissa that her name is Sharon, not Sandra, which is oh, correct. Yeah, yeah, Sharon. Uh, Sharon yeah. the wife. Anyway. Sorry, yeah, Nina I started, Haas. I, I started it. I called her uh, I've been Sandra referring to her first. as Nina Haas as well, all Oscar uh, season. Basically, yes. <laughs> if he thinks all white women look alike, that's fair. Yeah. And they and all look true, like Sandras. Yeah, yeah. Um, listen, from one Sandra, you're not wrong. Um, the There is something to the... The research that went into this movie, like when it starts and it's this extended interview and you get a deep exposition, whatever. I was like, oh, because I watched this sight unseen back in the day. Or I watched this sight unseen, you guys. For the first time, (laughs) I had never seen this before when I watched it. But I didn't know anything about it at all. And it's set up in this really unique, Hmm. both tonal and narrative way that you really feel like you're about to watch a thriller. Like I watched the first third of it, assuming I was getting clues like, oh, somebody's going to gone girl 
is Sharon slash Sandra going to do something? Like, because it's it's really, oh, it's giving you mystery. What and you don't know about Lydia Tarr is that she's also a spy. Yeah, very yes, foreboding. It, yeah. Yeah. And I truly was like, oh, I'm, I feel like I should be following these things. She is also, also the world's greatest assassin. <laughs> I would believe that. I would 100% yes. believe that. Those, those soft, so, soft-soled shoes could take her anywhere. But the, so I was both taking in, I'm like, oh, I'm learning all of this stuff about classical music. And, okay, great. Oh, the left hand does what? And then the right hand is over here doing what? Like, it's just coming at you so quickly. But I was like, oh, buried within that are going to be all these clues. And they were. But like Matt said, they were not, they were subtext. It wasn't like, oh, this is, you're going to find out. Like, because you do get these nods to Krista, her her previous um, dalliance, who, who seemingly a, a little mentally unstable and also Lydia has really done her wrong in terms of telling, not even not making recommendations, but telling people that she is not worthy of hiring. Dangerous. So, right? Yes. So I was like, oh, well, something's going to happen with Krista that that oh, we're going to find out things. And the fact that you do, like you're getting the shape of a thriller and you're getting the idea of clues being laid out. It's just that where you end up with those clues and what you're meant to be piecing together is not a mystery in the sense of like who did this to what, but it's so much more complex than that. I mean, I would argue that there are actual full on horror set pieces in this movie. I mean, oh, there yeah. are, there is a ticking clock coming from nowhere as she slowly goes through the house and opens cabinets. There is the scene where she is literally being followed by a disembodied voice in a dark path. I mean, the entire tone of a lot of this film is scary. I mean, I was very anxious watching it. And the second time I was also very high. So I was like, it was, that was really scary. And you also don't know who you're sitting next to in these theaters. You know what I mean? I don't know who's going to see Tar at 11 p.m. on a Tuesday. Well, and they have this recurring thing. You see Krista and her very noticeable red hair. Yeah. And there's, you know, when she's first introduced from a wild, wide shot, and you're like, yes, yes. But that lady is in, like, the shadows in a bunch of shots in rooms that she is not actually in. And it's very low-key horror movie. I yeah. think of this movie as being in black and white at a lot of times and it wasn't. But like yeah. when I think about individual scenes, I picture them just being black and white because it has, there is a gothic mood to this whole thing for sure. Also, yeah. the like the the crazy scene discovering uh, the neighbor and her, uh, you know, like bedridden sister, like mm. that was really insane. And I think that obviously like just a metaphor for like there's something rotting in your house next door you know what i mean and you won't deal with it and when 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 confronted with it you are immobile you know what i mean it's 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 really there's so much here on rewatch which is why i even i'm even more blown away after the third time watching it it's such a confident directorial feat to trust the audience um with an almost three-hour movie that doesn't say much about what it is at any point yep yep vote yeah. vote 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 <laughs> Yes, uh, as you already know, Matt, uh, the way we rate things on this pod is screen it being the highest, stream it being the middle ground, and skip it being self-explanatory. So who wants to kick this off? Oh, I'll, I'll say screen it, no question. Uh, and it is a movie that I, I don't feel like I love it in the way that a lot of my peers do who are giving it awards and like, you know, it, it bending over backwards for it. But as a just portrait of too much you know just as like just somebody who is just too much to function uh and, and but but couched in a very sort of like recognizable 
rhetoric of of Oscar bait middlebrow movie, but at the same time, when viewed with the right lens, a, a sort of ludicrous kind of showbiz tell all sudsy you know thing, but just set in you know again the the to the very Tony world of of classical music. Um, yeah, I I, I I eat this with a spoon. I'm also mm. absolutely a screen it. This was on my top 10 of the year, as you guys know. Come for the Leonard Bernstein references. Stay for her smug face as she gets tailored into a blazer. I mean, every every shot's a banger, as they say. It's a great one. I um, It'll surprise no one that I'm a big old screen it. Um, I don't think we've even really touched enough on the performance yeah. of Cate Blanchett in this film. I personally am a, I'm a diehard Michelle Yeoh this year. I hope it goes her way, but this is, you know, I think a just towering performance from who I believe is our greatest living actor. I think this is just in terms of like living and embodying a character but also there is there it, it is a comedy performance. I mean that that first interview scene that that long interview scene in the very beginning is just a tour de force and when you know what you're getting by the end of your first watch go back again and you'll be laughing and just know that when you screen it the people that are laughing in the theater those are the ones that are getting it. Okay, <laughs> just because the film is presented a certain way and it looks like a scary horror movie, like Alonso was saying, and we feel foreboding, you know, energy. This is a comedy. This is a satire, and it's extremely well done. Kudos to Todd Field, Kate Blanchett, and everyone involved. Out, out of all those Best Picture nominees, it's a close one for me between Tar and Everything Everywhere All at Once. But I give it to Tar just because I believe it's 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 really saying something about something I think we're all thinking about too much yes. and it makes it simple yeah my my vote uh, is going to be with the crew and opposite of this musical educator on the google film reviews which if you ever want to read some unhinged movie reviews look up the google one uh you know he disliked it because you know he said uh he he spends most of his leisure time with classical music having been trained as a musical educator he said he was so very anxious to watch this film he loves Mahler and rubbed his hands sitting down to view this fictional depiction of life in the concert hall at all but then oh, he says God. it's one of the most boring films he has ever forced himself to watch he was hoping with each passing half hour it would start to make sense and get into something meaningful for two two and a half hours he kept checking the time pausing the movie to see how much grief remained and then he said the only valuable takeaway of this horrible experience was the narrative provided by Bernstein at the very first Young People concert broadcast, January 1958, and that he noted, that spoke to the power of music. True words were never in all caps spoken. Here's what I waited 150 minutes to hear, and he quotes it, and that's all he says. <laughs> so, so it sounds like a music dork uh, who like wanted it to be like... <laughs> A, a masturbatory celebration of classical music. Sorry. This is somebody um, who was mad that there were no actual banshees in Banshees of Inner Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, I you know, so, sorry I included that in my review, but it was so funny that I wanted to force you all to know that exists. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but on that note, why don't you go ahead and uh, wait for a second because we'll be right back after we hear from another show for Maximum Fun. 
Oh my gosh, hi, I'm Dave Holmes, host of the pop culture trivia podcast, Troubled Waters. On Troubled Waters, we play games like motivational speeches. It goes a little like this. Riley, give us an improvised motivational speech on why people should listen and subscribe to Troubled Waters. I look around this ad and I see a lot of potential to listen to comedians such as Jackie Johnson and Josh Gondelman, and they need you to get out there and listen to them attempt to figure out sound rebus clues or determine if something is a Game of Thrones character or a city in Wales. I have chills. I'm going to give you 15 points. All that and so much more on Troubled Waters. Find it on MaximumFun.org or wherever you choose to listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Maximum Film. I'm your host, Ify Whiteyway, in the studio with me are... Alonzo Duraldi. Matt Rogers. Drea Clark. And it's me, Marissa Flaxbart. Woo, I'm the producer, the and I'm here. <laughs> so, um, for our C block of the show today, since we have this bold film, it's got a lot of ways that it's bold, but it has this, um, to me, I just such an audacious like opening sequence. I don't know about you guys, but when I watched Tar in the theater for the first time, the longer the opening interview with real-life New Yorker columnist Adam Goptic went the more I was just like, I can't believe they're going to fucking do it. Like, I can't believe this is still happening. But I had to check myself. I wasn't mad like Matt, because I also thought if this were real, like on YouTube, I would be watching this. Like, I'm interested. I care. Um, So one of the crazy things that that does that's so awesome is that it lets you learn, like, everything that's going on with Lydia Tarr and her whole deal and um, in this, like, you know, ultimately fairly succinct way. So my question for you all today is if you could add such a scene, this like lengthy interview with a main character onto the beginning of any film, what movie would it be? Which character would be interviewed? And maybe if you thought of one, who'd be interviewing them? I was gonna say there's several directions to go. Like what immediately came to mind for me was Miranda Priestly in A Devil Wears mm-hmm. Prada. The, uh, the devil. devil. One of many. <laughs> the Devil Wears Prada. Although Miranda Priestly is maybe too close to Lydia Tarr to be any interest <laughs> at all. Obviously, I would want Andre Leon Talley being the one interviewing so her. Good. And I would watch 18 hours of that. But more interestingly, for a story thing, um, I would very much like to see an in-depth interview with Mr. Hannibal Lecter Ooh. from Silence of the Lambs. Oh, there you go. I feel like he has things to say about a myriad <laughs> of, uh, you know, different arenas. Like, there's so many things I think that he could go on and on about. And and although, yes, would it absolutely mess up the entire flow of Silence of the Lambs? It sure would. <laughs> it absolutely would throw us off. You should be introduced to him right after um, a fellow inmate splooges you in the face. Um, Oh, that's the verb? That's the verb for that action. I said nutted before, now we got splooges and rule of threes. We need another one. (laughs) If he's there, it'll happen. If you're in the first three rows, we're giving you a tarp. (laughs) Well, luckily those seats are cheaper. (laughs) 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 Callback. I like that. The splash zone. I usually come to these hypotheticals with something very like, you know, uh, academic or, you know, uh, obscure. But I'm going to say this. I think that if uh, Avengers Endgame had begun with a sit down with Thanos, 
I think that would have been a really fascinating <laughs> interview. You know, get like, I don't know, Amy Goodman from uh, Democracy Now! to really grill him with the tough questions about Thomas Malthus and his philosophy of like resources versus population. You know, uh, I think there's a lot of explaining that needs to be done there. The, 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 the what's left of the world after the snap would love to hear directly uh, from his uh, purple scrotally mouth um, or have him sit down with Desus and Mero, one of the two. But I, I think. <laughs> I think for sure that's how you really want to kick off that movie. Alonzo, you keep me young. I can't believe you yeah. just said Thanos. <laughs> Avengers yes. Endgame. Didn't see it coming. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, pissed. I'm, pissed. I'm pissed you kicked it over to Jesus and Mero. Me and Bowen are right here. Uh, you're yeah. right. <laughs> True. What was I thinking? We'd love to have Thanos on. It'd be a huge <laughs> episode for us. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Uh, Girl, yeah. purple. How do you make it work? Uh. <laughs> Um, I thought, thought long and hard about this. Just kidding. I knew immediately what I wanted to say. Um, I thought to myself, picture this. The cast of The Hours in a real housewife sit down with Andy Collins. <laughs> oh my- <laughs> and then wait, wait. I thought to myself, I think we need, we need all the women of The Hours sitting down to really get to the bottom of this. But then I realized, like, maybe I like that more as, like, an actrosexual in theory. Because, again, they do occupy different times and spaces, and this does sure, have to sure. happen at the top. So I will say maybe instead of the overture at the beginning of Nine, we have a sit-down with Andy Cohen. All the women in the film Nine, I think this would make this better. I think that some sequences in this film are really, really good. Other ones could get cut, and we just have Andy Cohen sit down with them. Like, what does Marion Cotillard actually feel about Penelope Cruz? What would she say to her face about what she's doing with her man? I'm telling you, the Real Housewives of Italy and the... the, oh, the, the I'm, I'm saying, like, it is... It is Drag and drop, baby, and get Andy Cohen over there. Get him, get the man on a plane. Would watch oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. oh man. Uh, so you know, the, you know, you would think I would want something like you know Dominic Toretto sitting down with Import Tuner magazine and kind of going through it, but uh, he has enough speeches in that whole series to really do any more more than any interview could do. So my pick would have what else to be you possibly uh, need to know. Yeah, exactly. He lets you know. But um, so Genius has this series called Verify, where they have artists go through the lyrics and explain what they mean. So I think Connor, Lawrence, and Owen from Popstar Never Stop Sopping have to sit <laughs> down and through a, one of their one of their songs that they made for the movie and like explain in character like the uh, meaning behind the lyrics and uh, have that fun uh, that that fun personal interview with genius. Yeah, do oh a deep God. dive on the Bin Laden song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think should have won an Oscar for best original song. Why do we have the category if it's not for that? Yeah, That's yeah. so question. true. Missed uh, opportunity. Uh, somebody that I know pointed out, how could they not nominate Apartment for Sale from Tar? You know, uh, hello. <laughs> Apartment for Sale is catchy. It really it gets yeah, stuck it, in your it's head. It's a earworm for sure. It's a it's a front runner for favorite scene in the movie for me too. Like it's one of those ones that you because everyone's if asked that question you're gonna say the Petra scene. You know what I mean? Yeah. That where where like where where she intimidates the kid. Like that's like I think the Oscar clip and the best scene. The Juilliard but, like, scene the, too. The Juilliard scene is great. But like that Apartment for Sale is if that's the Oscar clip, I love it. <laughs> I hope it's the opening number at the Oscars. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> she can maybe you can work that into the spirit award ceremony, Drea. Yeah, if she can bring her accordion with uh, to stomp around on stage. There we go. Well, uh, if there are any creatives out there, you know, looking for some inspiration, you know, break out your final draft or you know notebooks and pencils and get to work writing those scenes. Uh, a new form of fan fiction was just birthed here tonight. So, with that, I'll throw it back over to you, Ify. All right. Well, now it's time for staff picks. It could be any movie at all. Who wants to kick this off? I, I almost went thematic with the Mahler's Fifth to talk about uh, a decision to leave, but I think one of us has already made that a staff pick. So uh, I dug back in my memory bank. So the first movie I remember seeing Ms. Kate Blanchett in, and that would be 1997's Oscar and Lucinda from one of my very favorite filmmakers, the great uh, Jillian Armstrong. Um, whose work includes, you know, My Brilliant Career and uh, Starstruck, a movie I was recommending to Matt during the break. Uh, and this is, you know, like, I, I didn't know who this person was. And here she is, not only starring in a film from uh, one of my favorite filmmakers, but sharing the screen handily with one Ray Fiennes, who is no walk in the park, I'm sure, for a leading lady who is not, you know, coming to it with all of her metal uh, ready to go. Um they make a wonderfully eccentric couple. Uh, she is a, a, an heiress who owns a glass factory. Uh, he's a clergyman. They love to gamble, and uh, eventually they send a glass chapel up the river like it was Fitzcarraldo or something. It doesn't make any sense, but who cares? It's them, and they're gorgeous, and the movie uh, has a real uh, uh, just sort of wonderful spirit of oddity, and uh, uh, it is a passionate film about compulsive gamblers and you know uh strange religious choices but the the three of them pull it off with of course with writer laura jones who did the portrait of a lady adaptation a lot of other great screenplays so yeah it's a movie that doesn't get talked about a lot and it uh like titanic turned 25 last year and so if you've never seen oscar and lucinda it is currently available for rent or purchase at apple tv well, I will see your Oscar and Lucinda, and I'll raise you a Hillary and Jackie. There you go. That was my pick. It's from the next year, and it's it was in my head because although this movie misses out on never having Lydia Tarr say cello, um, <laughs> they do name check Jacqueline Dupre, who's world famous cellist, um, and was the inspiration for the Olga character in getting into cello. Um, and Jacqueline Dupre and her sister Hilary Dupre, of course, are the um, the focus of Hilary and Jackie, uh, the Anon Tucker film from 1998, starring Emily Watson and Rachel Griffiths. They had a very um, tricky relationship as competitive musicians, and then um, Jacqueline also suffered from MS, and there was affairs, there was illness, there was sisterhood. It's all right there. You can rent it. Hillary and Jackie. Cello. Cello. I uh, just, I logged on to Netflix the other night, and I had forgot that this was out, but um, the new Pamela Anderson documentary, Love, uh, Pamela, A Love Story. It's directed by Ryan White, who did the Dr. Ruth film a few years ago. He's really great. And he really captures, um, I think, a person that is obviously completely misunderstood by the world. And I just thought it was really interesting to hear so clearly from her. Because even these documentaries that get made about these you know, women that we ruined in the 90s, it feels like none of them are authentically from them. But this is, like, I, I, in, in many ways, a piece of like living history. If you think about the 90s and the tabloid culture and just how important that time ended up being formatively for the way that um, 
not only how we receive culture, but how we talk about the people, pop cultural figures. I think this is really worth a watch. She's much smarter and funnier than you think. Um, her sons, who clearly adore her, produced the film. And it all culminates at her uh, opening night performance uh, on Chicago on Broadway, a performance that I actually was at. Because <gasps> I, probably like many people, said, well, I got to buy a ticket to this. This is going to be one way or the other. And then what I saw on stage was someone really committing um, and working hard. And, you know, I just had a great affinity for her and love for her. And she made a lot of really interesting points about how, you know, the moments in her career that you think would be her selling out actually were the ones that made her the most empowered. And she's got a really um, important thing to say about exploitation. So I think that that is a really, really worthwhile watch. It's called Pamela, A Love Story. It's directed by Ryan White. And it features the legend herself. So that's what I would say. Good call. Cool. Ooh, nice, nice. Uh, so, you know, I went on the Kate Blanchett love cha- train as well. Trying to keep y'all on the Kate train after a phenomenal performance like this. It requires more per- phenomenal performances. Probably something a little early, a little indie number for y'all to check out. It might be hard to find, uh, but I'm sure Alonzo can help you find it. Uh, it is the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, uh, where she, her breakout role, uh, where she plays Galadriel. Uh, you know, people were like, Kate, who until this role? Um, so I'm excited for you to somehow get your hands on this uh, indie darling and have it explode uh, as you watch it on the screen for You went full hours. iffy. <laughs> you couldn't help yourself. Just full iffy on that one. There's never been anything more DVD player culture than the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring. That was so <laughs> yes. like, all right, we got a surround sound. We spent all five <laughs> yeah. speakers up and they're all around the living room. Put in the long movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of like the old school, you know, ways to watch stuff. The only thing I think of when I think of the Titanic was how it was two VHSs. So you would have the break mm. that you would be in between and you'd have to get it out. Or if you were, you know, super nice, you would rewind. So you'd stop at this point in the movie, rewind, and then get the other VHS and pop that bad boy in. So another thing, kids will never know. Have we ever known such courtesy? Yeah. (laughs) Be kind. Rewind. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, Matt Rogers. What have you done? Thank you so much for having me. What a joy. Uh, Yeah, I have my podcast, Last Culture Recess. It comes out every Wednesday. I host that with uh, Bowen Yang. And um, yeah, you can follow me at uh, Matt Rogers, though, on Instagram. And uh, I'm around. You see me. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, send Bo on my love. Tell him, you know, I'll never forgive him for stealing Ego from me. Uh, we had a strong Nigerian alliance <laughs> on this coast. And now she belongs you know, to the world now after that Lisa yeah. from Temecula sketch. Uh, she really belongs yo, to the world. Oh my now. fucking <laughs> God. That, that was like, it was so good. And just seeing everyone break because it was so ridiculous. Oh, yeah. I'm like, this it is was what it's all vibes. about. We yeah, want to yeah. see Lisa oh. back at the at any dine at any dining room yeah. table. She's welcome. Also, Temecula is such a throw for a like in LA place. I have someone who used to live near Temecula. That is nuts. <laughs> Beyond. Uh, but yes. Mm. Uh, Drea and Alonzo, thank you for another wonderful show. Y'all are great. It's always fun to hop on, talk it up, stare at Drea's face, look at Alonzo's amazing beard. 
you know, it's it's good. It's a it's a great uh, podcast throuple, and I'm always proud to be in it. Uh, but you, <laughs> listener, I'm sorry. This is a quad, and you're a part of it. And if you have a comment <laughs> or suggestion about this week's show, tweet at us at Maximum underscore film. Our Facebook group can be found at www.facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Maximum Film. Or send us an email at MaximumFilm at MaximumFun.org. And as much fun as it is to say speak pipe, we have an updated URL you can use to leave us a voice message for the hotline. It's maximumfun.org forward slash hotline. But you're definitely still using the speak pipe to pipe up your speaks and send them to us to listen to. Our producer is the wonderful Marissa Faxbart. Our senior producer is also wonderful, and her name is Laura Swisher, and we love her texts where the moment she starts listening to the episode. <laughs> I love Laura! It's a production <laughs> of Maximum Fun. Yes, we love you, Laura. Bye-bye! MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture Artist owned Audience supported